Okay, good morning, everyone. And thanks for those prayers, Jen. That was a really special way to pray for others in our church family. And hello to everybody online as well. Glad that you can join us. If you don't know me already, my name is Sarah, and I'm one of the elders here at Calvary. Now, I don't know what kind of music you like. My dad has always had a really eclectic taste, and he listened to a lot as I was growing up. Didn't matter whether it was Ella Fitzgerald, UB40, Johnny Cash, a choral symphony, carols at Christmas. All the best songs had one thing in common. They told a story, or part of a story. Every good song has a unique story behind it, whether it's triumph or tragedy. Sometimes we get the whole story. Sometimes we're thrown into the middle of the story. Have you noticed that at certain times you listen to the same song over and over again, simply because it meets you where you're at? Just after I started dating my husband, I moved to France for a year, as you do. And my go-to song was Get Here. You may know the lyrics. You can reach me by railway. You can reach me by trailway. You can reach me by airplane. You can reach me with your mind. I don't care how you get here. Just get here if you can. Someone else understood how I was feeling. Part of their story was my story. And the same is true of the Psalms. Part of their story is our story. Whether we're lamenting, complaining, yelling, celebrating, full of thankfulness, mourning, they give us words for thoughts and feelings, hopes and doubts, that we sometimes find hard to express as we live out our own stories. This summer, we're looking at different psalms together. So far, we've explored Psalm 1, 42 and 43, and 51. So if you've missed any of the talks, I encourage you to go online and have a listen. Today, we're focusing on Psalm 30, and I chose it for two reasons. One of the songs we sing fairly regularly here at Calvary is based on the last two verses of this psalm. And you may not know that, and we're going to sing it later. I thought it would be good to unpack the whole psalm together. The second reason is that we get the whole arc of the story. Do you remember learning to write a story in elementary school? And you were told that every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as you get older, you're told that a really good story works towards a crisis in the middle that is resolved at the end. And this psalm does that in a wonderfully constructed, non-linear kind of a way. The song begins with the end of the story, then the psalmist invites their community to join in praising God. Then we get the story of the crisis before coming full circle to, well, the end of the story. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read Psalm 30 to you. Let's pray together. 
Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here and that you are alive and at work. I ask that you would graciously speak through the words that I say and that everybody in this room and online would hear the message that you want them to hear today. Lord, thank you that you care enough to speak to us individually in our story and meet us exactly where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so sit back, relax. Listen as I read Psalm 30 to you. Feel free to follow on the screen. If you want to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 542. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. This psalm echoes a rhythm of life that is familiar to many of us. What theologian Walter Brueggemann has described as a cycle of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Orientation is that place where everything makes sense, including our relationship with God. It's the familiar day-to-day -day life that we've become accustomed to. It may not be easy or especially enjoyable, but it feels comfortable, reliable, and predictable. Our songwriter describes this in verse six and the first half of verse seven. When I felt secure, I said, I will not be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. The psalmist is remembering the confidence they had when everything was going well. Nothing challenged or threatened the status quo. They felt stable, secure, confident. And perhaps this describes you today. 
And then everything falls apart for the psalmist and they find themselves in a place of disorientation. Verse seven continues, when you hid your face, I was dismayed. We can't be sure what caused the disorientation as the psalmist uses language and metaphor that's very typical of Hebrew poetry. In the first three verses, depths, the realm of the dead, and pit are metaphors of death. For the ancient Israelites, the concept of life encompassed well-being, happiness, vitality. Life was all about flourishing, about shalom. Death was anything that diminished that vitality. And so although the psalmist may have been facing physical death, death could refer to a much broader set of circumstances or problems. In a similar vein, enemies in verse one is a metaphorical way to refer to any circumstances that threaten to disrupt the stability, the orientation of life. Disorientation happens when life as we know it has changed in some significant way. And just as I read that, I was thinking about the prayers that we just mentioned and all these people at the moment in our church family or connected to our church family who have really difficult circumstances at the moment. The way life might have changed is that we've experienced loss death, health, a change in finances. We start questioning beliefs that we've taken for granted. We're in a place of transition, waiting and not knowing, a liminal space where previous certainties have been upended and we aren't yet sure of our new existence. Life feels unsettling, scary, and uncomfortable. And we can feel lost, confused, and abandoned by God. And perhaps this is you today. The very presence of verses six and seven and their placement at the center of the psalm in the verses addressed to the wider community seems to indicate the confession of a proud self-confidence or perhaps a forgetfulness that God is the source of all good things. And the psalmist presents this as a testimony from which others can learn. There also seems to have been a belief that God would make sure that nothing bad happened to the psalmist. And anything that shook that confidence would lead to a profound theological crisis. Probably as serious a disorientation that we can possibly experience. A few years ago, I read the memoir, Ruined, and it begins like this. It happened on a Sunday night, even though I'd been a good girl and gone to church that morning. After she and her roommates are raped at gunpoint, the author, Ruth Everhart, is haunted by questions. Why me? 
Where was God? Why did God allow this to happen? What am I being punished for? For years, Ruth wrestles with deep theological questions that eventually lead to a new understanding of God, of suffering, and of herself. Her memoir is written after she's moved from a place of utter disorientation to a reorientation, a new orientation. The psalmist is also telling their story from a place of reorientation, where they're flourishing once again. They have moved out of the unfamiliar into a place that is welcome, and their response is to praise God. The words at the end of the song are a powerful summary of the songwriter's story. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth, my clothes of mourning, and you have clothed me with joy. The psalmist is no longer disoriented. Perhaps this is you this morning. Every single person listening to me right now is somewhere in one of these places. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And there is no hierarchy here, in spite of what you may think. Given the choice, however, I'm guessing that we'd prefer to hang out in a place of orientation or reorientation. And yet, disorientation, what we might call maybe the messy middle, a crisis point in our story that causes us to question our beliefs is on some scale or another an inevitable part of life. A person's faith story is a lifelong evolving journey and it's normal to have periods of disorientation. Doubts and questions are part of the process and can lead to a deeper understanding of our faith. Disorientation is where transformation can take place. The temptation, however, is often to run away, to pretend it's not happening, or to numb it out. I became thoroughly disoriented when I was about 18 years old. My granddad had recently died, and I didn't know how to process my grief or where to process it. I was facing big exams that felt pivotal to the rest of my life, and I was on the leadership team of my school's Christian union with a head full of questions about God and nowhere that felt safe to ask them. It was a world where having it all together felt more important than being honest. Our psalmist isn't afraid to be honest. Their outburst might sound desperate, sarcastic, maybe whiny to your ears, but at least they're acting like someone in a two-way relationship. Take a look again at verses 9 and 10. What is gained if I'm silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust proclaim you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? It's like, bring it on. 
And if you're wondering about the legitimacy of doubts, questions, and challenging God, the Bible is filled with examples of people who are disoriented. Some of the Psalms are written entirely from a place of disorientation. In your own time, take a look at Psalm 13, 35, 74, 86, 137. This is just to name a few. The book of Job paints a picture of a thoroughly disoriented individual and tells the story of his move from orientation through disorientation to a place of reorientation. Or take John the Baptist. He's in prison. Jesus' ministry doesn't match his expectations. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to get an answer to this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John was disoriented. His theological expectations were not matching the reality he was experiencing. And now picture Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just like the psalmist, Jesus felt that God, his Father, had turned his face away. Jesus knows what it feels like to feel utterly disoriented. So, if we're being honest about where we're at, and we recognize that it's a normal part of the journey of faith to sometimes have questions that run so deep that we feel disoriented and destabilized, what practical steps can we take to embrace the process? And I tried really hard not to have three things, but I have three things that I'd like to suggest. The first is stop spinning. Find a point of reference. I'm reminded of a time that my mum and I were in a helicopter over jungle in Nigeria. Everything looked the same. It was very green, very misty, and you couldn't see very well. The pilot was looking at the map in a way that made us realize that he had no idea where we were. And strange though it may seem, we suggested that maybe we would drop down and find a road that we could, we could follow, because I could see that there was a road on the map he was looking at. We badly needed to find a point of reference. And I think it's the same when we're spiritually disoriented. When we face challenging philosophical and ethical issues, when we experience personal hardships, or maybe we question the teaching that perhaps we grew up with, find a point of reference. This might mean hanging on to one of God's promises. Maybe something like Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, God says, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will 
help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or perhaps it's focusing on Jesus amidst all that feels uncertain. Someone I know and love in the middle of a long and very public battle where he felt like he was fighting for his life against injustice told me one morning that all he could do was go to an early morning communion service and kneel at the altar before the cross. His long friendship with Jesus remained something solid he could cling to amidst all the uncertainties and the fears and the questions. Or perhaps it's an experience of God that you simply cannot refute. You know deep in your being that this is true. At a difficult time in my life when I felt a deep sense of shame and rejected rather than nurtured by my Christian community, I read Isaiah 43 verses 18 and 19. And it was an extraordinary experience. I hadn't been able to pick up my Bible for a while. And I remember I walked across the room and I picked it up from my bedside table and I opened it. And I'm not one generally who goes, hey, open the Bible and just it's a word from God. But I read these words and they are seared into my story because I knew that this was God speaking to me. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. And at the time, I only read that first bit. But since then, I've read on. And the poetry of the next bit also speaks to me. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This experience of God that I've told you is seared into my story has anchored me through times of disorientation since then. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Stop spinning. I haven't turned my face away, God says. The second thing I'd like to suggest, and the third thing's much shorter than the first two, so. The second thing is, don't be afraid to examine your theology. For our psalmist, God's blessing was linked to things going well. So when things stopped going well, he thought God had abandoned him. And it can feel like that. But his theology needed a bit of a rethink. It can feel scary to examine our theology. What if everything unravels and we're left with nothing? Well, it's possible. But my experience, and that of people that I deeply respect, is that wrestling with theological questions fosters spiritual maturity and allows us to live more honestly, humbly, and freely. 
And on top of all that, God doesn't seem worried at all about our questions. In fact, he seems to invite us into an ongoing search for a deeper understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him faithfully in the here and now. Jeremiah 29:13 says, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." I don't think our relationship with God is a one-off, oh, I found God kind of a thing. That's it then. It's a learning process, just like any meaningful relationship. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, they should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. I do think there's a caveat here, however. God might, and I believe he does, give wisdom generously, but I'm not sure it always arrives as quickly as we would like when we're disoriented. And that's okay. Actually, it can feel really uncomfortable, but in the long run, it's okay. God's been reminding me these past few months that if something is important to work out, then I need to trust him that it's okay to be living in the in-between while I listen and wait and learn. Clarity will come. Someone wise said to me once, and it's become a bit of a mantra and I tend to say it to others, you can't microwave the process, Sarah. And you don't need to navigate disorientation on your own. I encourage you to reach out to someone you trust, one of the pastors here, an elder, a counselor, a friend. They may be able to offer perspective, share their own experiences, and help you explore your questions. But choose wisely. Job's three friends weren't comfortable at all with his disorientation and they tried to force their theology on him, and somewhat warped theology at that, rather than give him space, encouragement, and guidance to work things out for himself. And I think sometimes we just need to keep remembering that the Holy Spirit is at work. And third point, don't shut God out. That's what I was doing before I picked up the Bible to read that Isaiah verse. My shame had created a barrier. Don't let that happen. Keep the lines of communication open, even if you're not sure God is listening or if he's there at all. The Psalms offer language if you can't find the words. Perhaps use these songs to help you be honest with God. And remember, Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be disoriented, and he sits in the pit with you. I think it's really important to keep reminding ourselves that faith isn't about having all the answers. 
It's about cultivating a relationship with God and growing in our understanding over time. And disorientation is often a necessary path for reaching a new perspective and a new appreciation of God's goodness. Disorientation can unravel our attachment to the status quo, to comfort and the illusion of control. It can open us up to a new understanding of God and of ourselves. Verse five of Psalm 30 says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When navigated with openness and sincerity, the weeping of disorientation can lead to the rejoicing of a deeper, more mature faith that helps us to navigate future challenges with a stronger foundation. It's an opportunity for growth, for, for shalom, for flourishing, rather than an indication of some kind of spiritual failure. And I'm going to say that again, because I think it's really important. Disorientation is an opportunity for growth, for the flourishing that God wants for each of us more than anything else. It is not an indication of some kind of spiritual failure. It often takes courage to ask questions, and it takes patience to wait for the answers. And God is with us through the whole process. Worship team, do you want to come up while I draw things to a close? Life experiences and learning have challenged and shaped my faith, my theology, my understanding of myself and my understanding of others, and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this is likely to be your story too. I'm not expecting the challenge or the shaping to stop anytime soon. And so my story, just like yours, remains a dynamic one. And that's the exciting bit. It will, however, I'm sure, continue to reflect the cycle of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Because life is complicated. And to be honest, so are we. As I look back over my story so far, however, there's some things that I am absolutely convinced about. When we're living in the pit of disorientation, God is absolutely there with us. He wants us to have the courage to keep searching after truth and wisdom when life no longer seems to fit our theology. And in doing so, I am convinced that we will discover afresh that our God is indeed worthy of our praise and thanks forever. 
We're now going to sing Taste and See, the song that I mentioned that's based on verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 30. So I'd like us to stand together knowing that our church family is a place where we can be honest about where we're at and where we can nurture and encourage one another and listen to one another through times of disorientation. 